Welcome to The Bible and Our Culture, sponsored by Liberty Remnant Church. Hi, I'm Pastor Jay McPherson, and you can reach me at office at libertyremnantchurch.org. That's office at libertyremnantchurch.org. Love to hear from you. Well, it's always been imperative that God's people view the culture through the lens of the Bible. Way too many Christians today like to view the Bible through the lens of the culture. That is, we'll ask ourselves, what is cool with the culture? And how can we make the Bible sound like the culture? Please don't do that. This show is to provoke believers to adhere to the scriptures in all things. I mentioned last week, put a sentinel at the door of your mind. I'm thinking you know what a sentinel is. It's a guard. It's some uh, security officer that would stand at the door, say, of a courtroom for the king and would not allow unauthorized personnel into the courtroom. Well, we've got to do that with our minds in the scripture. We have to have a sentinel across our mind that says, where are my thoughts coming from? Way too many just go along with the culture. We have secularism bombarding us left and right. So if we don't have this guard across our minds, well, I feel like we're going to be duped into believing what the world believes. And if we go that road, it leads to destructions. So anything, if you have a thought and you think, hey, I, I think I'm right on this. Well, if it has to do with morals, if it has to do with values, if it has to do with spiritual beliefs, then you better make sure it comes from Scripture. Now, not everything that we believe that's biblical comes with a direct quote from Scripture. Pardon me if I'm a bit crass, but the Bible doesn't say, thou shall not belch at the dinner table. It doesn't say that. However, it does say things like, nobody look out for their own needs, look out for the needs of others. There's the golden rule, treat others the way you want to be treated, love one another, care for one another. So a biblical worldview would understand you don't belch at the dinner table. It's just not loving. But you know what is even more clear than that? A lot of the hot topic issues in today's culture, like marriage and sexuality, abortion, transgenderism, those things are really clear in Scripture. So it's up to us, as God's church in this hour, to hold fast to a biblical worldview. The Holy Spirit will guide sincere believers into the truth. The Bible is the standard by what we look at everything, moral, spiritual, priorities. We want to make the, band, the Bible the standard. And that's what this show is about. Now, the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at Israel, the children of Israel, coming up to the promised land. I'm sure you know the story. They were slaves in Egypt, but God, through a mighty hand, delivered them, afflicted plagues on the Egyptians. They crossed the Red Sea miraculously and through the wilderness with all sorts of miracles, signs and wonders, supernatural provision to get to the land that had been promised to their forefathers generations ago. It's like the big moment in Israel's history. 
Well, if you know the story, Moses sent 12 spies into the land, and when they came back, 10 of them were struck with fear. They started complaining. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, they came back with faith. They said, oh, this is a great land. And even though there are giants, even though there are walled cities, well-fortified, large cities full of giants, because God promised it to us, we're going to go take this land and receive his blessing. Well, the other 10 spies, they started to complain, and it spread throughout the whole camp. And if you know the story, they wept all night. They got up the next morning. They wanted to stone Joshua and Caleb. They wanted to get rid of Moses and Aaron. They were in a full-on panic. They lost their minds. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They thought it'd be better if they were dead. I mean, they really were having a pity party. And a lot of people miss this. God was ticked. God was not a bit happy with his people. So in Numbers 14, verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? Well, the Lord rightfully identified their behavior as rejecting him. If you look carefully at the conversation there between the Lord and Moses, God uses the phrase against me to describe their behavior four times. So he saw their complaining. He saw their fear as an attack against him. So we have to ask ourselves, what about our fear and our complaining and our defeated attitude does God see as rejection? Because there's a lot of crazy stuff going on in our world. And if we yield to the fear, could we be rejecting God's blessing towards us? Like a human father, God seems grieved and even angry at his kid's lack of trust here. I'd almost paraphrase God's conversation with Moses as something like this. Why don't they trust me, Moses? After all I've done for them, all the miracles, all my faithfulness, all the promises, why don't they trust me? Now, the almighty, transcendent, self-sufficient God cannot be harmed, but he does feel grief. If we think of God as somebody that could be harmed, we think of somebody that could be manipulated, somebody that we need to bargain with. That's not God. He is totally self-sufficient. So he says in verse 12, in grief, I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. That doesn't sound very loving, but it's true. Then he goes on to tell Moses, I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Wouldn't that be weird to want to go to the Holy Land today and have to travel to the land of Moses? God's going to wipe out all the children of Israel and just leave Moses, and he would start to populate a nation. Well, I think it brings up a really critical point that a lot of believers misunderstand, and I think it's important. That is, the wrath and judgment of God are concepts often ignored and even attacked by many Christians today 
despite their repetition in the Bible. Oh, you can see the wrath and judgment of God all over the Bible. Some would say, well, that's just the Old Testament. God's got a better mood in the New Testament. No, God doesn't change. And we see his wrath and judgment in both the New and Old Covenants. But if we're going to ignore this character of God, I think we misrepresent the true God of the Bible. I think this subculture we call Christianity today in America does, in some areas, misrepresent the true God of the Bible. That is, by ignoring the wrath and judgment of God, I think we actually diminish the love and grace of God. The more I appreciate the wrath and judgment of God, the more I see it for what it really is, the more I appreciate his love and mercy towards us by sending his son to pay the debt of our sin, to make us his, to adopt us into his family. Oh, the grace of God is amazing. But without understanding the wrath and judgment of God, many confuse the grace of God as if it means God has become apathetic towards sin. He used to care about sin back in the day, but now he's evolved. He doesn't care about sin that much no more. Oh, yeah, he didn't like it, but it's no big deal. I tell you, that is gross error. I'm concerned the relativism of today's culture has crept into the church. You've heard about relativism, moral relativism, situational ethics, trying to say there is no right or wrong. Nothing's really objective. There are no absolutes. And so believers today have thought, well, God used to care about sin back in the Old Testament, but today he's progressed. He's a progressive. Well, I think it's important that we appreciate all of who God is and embrace both this idea that he judges sin and this idea that he is gracious and loving. The crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ represents both the judgment of God and the grace of God coming together in one amazing act of both love and violence. We see the violence in Jesus being beaten, a crown of thorns put on his head and nails piercing his hands and feet, hung on a cross, tremendous violence. But why was he there? Well, it was because of love. It was so that God's grace could be imparted to us. That once Jesus paid the price, hallelujah, we could be his. So this punishment that Christ took for you and me brought us so much. Gave us access to the Father. It redeemed us. It forgives us of our sins. It become our salvation. We're now adopted into his family. And the list goes on and on. So it's important to understand the wrath of God does not minimize the grace of God. In fact, it causes us to appreciate the grace of God even more. If you ever believe that one attribute of God can diminish another, you probably misunderstand both. Right? God is not in conflict with himself. And God did not change his beliefs on sin when Jesus was born. God didn't change his beliefs on sin at the cross. God didn't change his beliefs on sin, even at the empty tomb. God has never changed his beliefs on sin. He's always been the same. He does not, cannot change. That's why we say God is immutable. 
he hasn't changed his view on sin, but because Jesus paid the price, we can be forgiven. That's why the cross is so amazing. But let's look now at Moses's reaction to the judgment of God in this story. God's going to wipe them out because they rejected him. They complained against him. And in verse 13 of Numbers 14, Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear it, for by your might you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, Lord, are among these people, that you, Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands above them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. I think God knew Moses would step up and advocate for them. God was looking for an intercessor. Even though they caused Moses so much trouble, and even though they caused God so much grief, Moses had it in his heart, compassion, love for his fellow man, says, I'm going to stand up and intercede on behalf of these stubborn, stiff-necked, immature people. That's kind of who Moses was. Moses seems to be the type of person who spent his life standing up for other people. First two actions we see of Moses in the Bible, Exodus 2. He was intervening to help people in trouble. He saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow countrymen, so he stepped in and killed the Egyptian. Then Pharaoh heard about it, so he fled. He went to the land of Midian. Sitting by a well, he saw seven daughters of the priest of Midian come to get water, and a shepherd harass him, so he stepped in to defend these ladies. He ended up marrying one of them, Zipporah. So here, all we know about Moses as this young adult is that he often stood up for others who were in trouble. But then right after this, we read in Exodus 3, Moses had the call to burning bush where he was called of God to go to Pharaoh and call God's people out of slavery. He was always standing up for others. It's almost as if God is playing the role of bad cop in this situation and Moses is playing the role of good cop. It's an imperfect analogy, this good cop, bad cop analogy. But if you're familiar with it, it can kind of explain, I think, a little bit what's going on. You've probably seen crime dramas where there's this bad cop who they arrest somebody and he's going, oh, we're going to throw the book at you. You're in big trouble. You better cooperate or you're going to get it. And then another cop comes along and says, oh, boy, my co-worker is really grumpy. Hey, please work with us. I'll tell you what, I'll try and get you this. I'll try and uh, if, you, if you work with us, we'll let you off. And so they, they use both the bad cop and the good cop to get the information and to move the case along. I kind of think there's a little bit of that going on here. God is playing the role of, I will not tolerate this type of disrespect. And Moses is playing the role of, God, but you're merciful. Lord, let's think about your reputation. And that can be hard for us to understand, but it's only because of our human limited minds that we can't understand God. We see his justice and mercy in conflict, but it doesn't work that way. In his dealings with guilty humans, it seems that God welcomes humans to play the role of good cop. That is, he welcomes humans, even though we're guilty, to play the role of intercessor and advocate for others. 
A big reason we can understand this is what I think is a real key verse to understanding the heart of God in the scriptures. Ezekiel 22, verse 30 and 31. Ezekiel's uh, book of the prophets, it's about judgment. God says in verse 30, chapter 22, So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath, and I have recompensed their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. Wow. These verses here in Ezekiel 22 are surrounded by all sorts of guilty verdicts listing multiple sins and multiple areas. God was acting as the bad cop in his judgment towards sin. He was telling them, you are in trouble, you are guilty, you have uh, resisted me just too long. But it also shows God was looking for an intercessor to play the role of good cop and represent his compassion on behalf of the nation. Sadly, though, it says he found no one. It's kind of one of the saddest verses in the Bible, that God looked for somebody to stand in the gap So he didn't have to destroy them, but he found nobody. So many think of intercession as simply praying for somebody besides yourself. And that's certainly a big part of it. certainly a big part of what intercessory prayer is. But technically speaking, intercession is a position of a go-between. It is the ministry of a mediator. It's the ministry of intervention or reconciliation often advocates for intervention on behalf of another. So I'm trying to uh, pray for our youth group at Liberty Remnant Church. And they're headed to camp this week. Going to go off and have a lot of fun and spend a lot of time with the Lord. I'm, I'm praying that God would meet with them. Not only that it would be fun, but that they would experience the power of the Holy Spirit, that they would hear God's voice, that his word would get imparted deep into their hearts. I'm interceding, oh God, on for your glory, because you love these kids. Meet with them in a powerful way. I hope that you would join me in that. I hope that you would join me in interceding on behalf of our state, on behalf of our nation. Saying, Lord God, you are good and merciful. We don't deserve it, but we ask that you would come and reveal yourself to us. Even the hardest hearts, pray that you would by the power of your Holy Spirit, touch lives and convert sinners to you. Let us have a revelation of who you are. Awaken us to your love and your justice. That's the role of an intercessor. If there's a dead battery and a live battery, what do you need to make the dead battery alive? You need an intercessor. You need a jumper cable. The jumper cables are the role of an intercessor to intercede between the dead battery and the live battery. So, for example, God is alive, and our world is dead in their trespasses to God. So how do we get live God to the dead world? Well, we need a jumper cable. We need intercessors, people who will stand in the gap and ask for God's mercy. Maybe a different analogy will help you. 
let's say we got a dry garden that's dying and we got fresh water at the uh, faucet. What do we need to get fresh water to the dry garden? Well, we need a hose. The hose is the intercessor. We need a hose to intercede between the two to get the living water of the Lord Jesus Christ to our dry and dying society. Now, Jesus is the ultimate intercessor. He interceded between God the Father and fallen sinful humanity. Romans 8.34 says, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Some people think that Jesus is at the right hand of God praying for us. That's really not what that this verse is talking about. He's playing that role of in between. He's reconciling us. He's the mediator between us and God so that we can go to God the Father because of what Jesus has done. So in Ezekiel 22, verse 30, he says, I sought for a man among them who would stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. And that's where Jesus stepped in and said, I'll stand in the gap. Don't destroy the people. I love them. Let your wrath come upon me. I'll intercede for them. That's what Jesus did. And I believe that's what he commands us to do in a way. Not that we're going to die for anybody else's sin. My blood isn't going to save anybody's sin. My blood's gross. But in 2 Corinthians 5.18, the Bible says, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, the intercessor. And it goes on to say, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to him, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Verse 20, now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So you understood that. This role of a reconciler was originally Jesus's role. He reconciled us to God with the Uh, his shed blood. Now we have the word of reconciliation. It's our job to go and bring people to God through Jesus. Basically, the way that Jesus lived on earth is the way his church lives on earth. We have the ministry he had. He had a body he was using, still has it. It was walking around here on planet earth 2,000 years ago. Now he has a body walking around earth. It's the body of Christ, his church. We are anointed to reconcile lost people to God. We want to reconcile lost people to God. If you're a new creation in Christ Jesus, you want to see people get saved. So verse 20 says, God pleads for souls to be saved through us as we are his ambassadors. We plead to God advocating on behalf of another. Maybe they're guilty. Maybe they're uh, stupid, and we think they don't deserve God's mercy. Well, guess what? Neither did you. Neither did I. We don't deserve God's mercy. It's because of his great love that Jesus interceded for us, and it's probably the love of saints that prayed you into the kingdom. 
And so because I'm a new creation in Christ, because I've been given the ministry of reconciliation as an intercessor, then I intercede for others that they would come to Jesus. Moses is standing in the gap on behalf of these immature people who've caused him and the Lord a lot of grief. As silly as it sounds, Moses appears to be convincing God that it would not be a wise choice if God killed these people, though they both knew they deserved it. God's not going to be taking advice from Moses. Let's just make that clear right now. God knows everything. But he appreciates this role of intercessor. He appreciates this role of somebody else, another human, standing in the gap for those who deserve to be destroyed. And Ezekiel 22 illuminates that to us. It says, I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. All that he could hear today, but I'm finding an interceding church. America is murdering the children. We see evil that can't even comprehend telling a boy he can be a girl and a girl she can be a boy, mutilating genitalia, uh, sex trafficking, all sorts of perversion all over the place, parents losing their rights. Instead of simply getting angry, oh, I'm angry. I'm angry. I, I think we should confront these evils. But there's also a role of an intercessor that says, Lord God, we don't deserve it, but you called America to take the gospel to the nations. Lord, you purposed in America to be a steward of liberty, your liberty. So God, I pray that you would remember your calling and purpose for our country and that you would move by your spirit, that there would be a third great awakening across this land. That all those who have been confused, those who have turned to their own way, maybe out of ignorance or maybe out of willful pride. Father, I pray that you would convict them. I, I pray that you would stand for your goodness and justice. I pray that you would uh, visit them in a powerful way. Lord, let my cry, let my prayer be as an intercessor. I think Ezekiel 22 was supposed to be a reenactment of Numbers 14, but there was nobody to play the role of Moses. There was no intercessor. Does that make sense? In Numbers 14, God tells Moses he's going to kill the people, and Moses stands up, as God knew he would, and pleads for mercy. But years later, during the time of the prophet Ezekiel, when God stirred upon him, hey, I'm going to bring judgment on the land, he, God says, I looked for somebody to play Moses, and there was nobody. So I pray that you would join me in interceding for our nation. If you're going to get angry, I understand. But let there be some compassion for, for God to intervene. Thank you so much for being part of this program, the Bible and our culture. Hope to see you at the same time uh, next week at libertyremnantchurch.org.